on this episode of The Climate Challengers. So if you were to take all the used fuel in Canada, all across Canada, the total amount of used fuel would fill nine hockey rinks from the bottom of the ice to the top of the boards. No, there have been no accidents resulting in harm to people in the environment due to uh, release of radioactivity. So you would need about 3,500 wind turbines to generate the same amount of electricity that comes from Darlington Station. There is a clear scientific consensus that the geological repositories offer the best solution for the safe long-term management use nuclear fuel. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Climate Challengers. My name is Osama Big, and when I'm not hosting the Climate Challengers, I'm an innovation lead at the Center for Canadian Nuclear Sustainability, as well as the host of a YouTube channel dedicated to simplifying nuclear technologies by demystifying them. So as you can imagine, I'm quite passionate about nuclear, and today we are going to talk all things nuclear waste. Now, one of the biggest criticisms we hear about nuclear power comes down to waste, or what we in the nuclear industry call byproducts. And while it is true that nuclear power produces byproducts, it also produces enormous volumes of zero emissions electricity that power our homes, businesses, and increasingly our vehicles. In the fight against climate change, this is huge. Without nuclear, we would not be able to replace oil and gas and electrify our lives in one generation, which is how urgently we need to move to keep temperatures from rising too quickly. The problem is that in the past, the nuclear industry hasn't always done a great job of explaining its byproducts. In this vacuum, myths have taken the place of facts. And that has created pockets of nuclear hesitancy amongst the public that could threaten our progress in tackling climate change. The fact is that nuclear power is the only energy source that accounts for the entire life cycle of its energy inputs. So on today's show, we are going to investigate the most popular myths about nuclear byproducts and begin to set the record straight. To help me do that, my first guest is Nula Zitsema. Nula is the Director of Strategy and Stakeholder Relations for the Nuclear Sustainability Services Division of OPG. Nula, thanks for being here and welcome to the Climate Challengers. You know what? Thanks so much for having me on the podcast today. And I just wanted to say, and I'm being truth- truthful here, I'm a big fan of your YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have a knack for simplifying and really demystifying all topics related to nuclear energy. And I watched the last one last night, actually. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, uh, happy you're <laughs> keeping up with the with the videos and uh, really excited to to have you on because you, you are a nuclear waste expert. And, um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of folks in the general public have a lot of misconceptions when it comes to nuclear waste. And a question that is asked uh, to me uh, and uh, to a lot of folks in the nuclear industry is, you know, what what is, you know, the myth, a myth, a myth that's out there is like, what is radiation and is radiation only produced in nuclear reactors? Yeah, no, great question. And, and there is a lot of myths out there or there are a lot of myths out there out there that we, we have to demystify. So radiation can be found all around us. You know, radiation's in our soils, it's in our air, it's in our water, it's in us. It's in a lot of the materials that we build our houses with. And because it's colorless and it's odorless, it's it's really difficult to see it. So it creates those myths. But radiation's radiation. So you have uh, this natural radiation, which is mostly radon. And then you have radiation that comes from space. So it's that cosmic radiation. And then you have the man-made radiation um, and, for example, nuclear energy. So Brazil nuts and bananas have an incredibly high amount of 
radiation, for example. And to give you some context, so I've been working in the nuclear energy uh, sector for 20 years. I started as an engineer in the nuclear at Pickering Nuclear Generating Station, and I've received a total of six milliram total radiation of my career. So if you were to take a flight from Los Angeles to Paris, there and back, so round trip, you would get about 10 millirems of radiation from that flight alone. So you can only imagine all those Hollywood celebrities flying from Los Angeles to Paris and all the film festivals and all those CEOs flying around the world getting all that cosmic radiation, which is more than even what I got in uh, the 20 years of working in a nuclear industry. That's incredible, Nula. So 20 years working day in and day out within the nuclear power plant, and you got you know, almost half the amount of radiation as compared to uh, a few few hours flight. Yeah, isn't it pretty remarkable? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's absolutely in- incredible. And um, you know, when when it comes to waste, what are, what is nuclear waste, right? So I think you did a great job explaining what radiation is, and it's it's everywhere, right? We can't see it, we can't hear, we can't taste it, right? But w- what does it mean when when it comes to nuclear waste? What what is that? Yeah, so every you have to think of it that every industry produces waste. And by waste, me means something that you have no more use for. So for the nuclear industry, that waste is radioactive. So it just means we have to handle it differently. So like you said, uh, you can't see it. And as humans, you, we want to see things. We want to touch them. We want to taste them, as you said. And we want to use all those senses to understand them. So my kids, I have four kids in elementary school, and they do a lot of experiments with water. Um, you know, they they can see what happens when it's wet, when it freezes, you know, when it goes in the kettle, and they can see the steam, they can, they can touch it. So we learn a lot through our senses. And for nuclear waste, the unfortunate thing is we have seen it. We've seen it on TV. We've seen it as the glowing green goo in The Simpsons. Uh, And those images have really helped uh, create these myths. And unfortunately, um, they're all false. And, you know, unfortunately, Osama, The Simpsons lied to you. (laughs) So nuclear energy does produce a small amount of waste. And it's classified according to the radioactivity and the containment that we need to um, put it in. So there's three types of waste. There's low-level waste, there's intermediate-level waste, and then there's the high-level waste. And I don't know if you know this, but 98% of the nuclear waste in Canada is classified as low-level waste. And actually, 95% of that low-level waste is soil from legacy projects and historical, older historical sites. So at OPG, we do have all those three levels of waste. And low-level waste is lightly contaminated items such as workers' garments. So when they go into the reactor building, they're wearing protective clothing, gloves, uh, it's paper, it's small small equipment or or small tools that they use in the reactor building. And then the intermediate-level waste are the resins or filters that are used in the reactors to purify the water systems. And then the high-level waste is that spent fuel, and it's the fuel. And in Kandu, it's uranium dioxide, and the fuel is placed into fuel bundles. And when uh, after the fuel bundles are used, it's called spent fuel. It comes out of the reactor, and they're placed in storage um, in water. And it's, it's placed in these wet uh, storage containers, which are basically big pools. And then they're placed in dry storage containers and stored on site. 
And another really great thing about the waste, um, you're an engineer, right? Yep. And I could go on and on about all the statistics, like, like I just said, all the, you know, the amount that's there, how it's safely stored, and all the elements, periodic table elements that we could discuss. But um, the most interesting thing about all of that is that it's all accounted for. So it's all characterized, it's all classified, it's all safely controlled, it's managed, and it's stored, and it's all fully funded. So every single ounce of it is accounted for, it's funded, and we know where it is and it's managed safely. So tell me a bit about nuclear fuel bundles. What do they look like and how long can they produce power before they become nuclear byproducts? So the fuel is uranium dioxide. And so there's these fuel pellets that are really small. They're about the size of your, you know, a penny and about, you know, about the size of your fingertips. And these fuel um, pellets are placed in these long tubes. And these tubes are all, you know, both multiple tubes are placed together and they create a bundle, kind of like a a fireplace log. That's That's how they kind of look and size and shape. The long tubes are bundled together to make this fuel bundle. And the fuel bundles are then placed in, I guess, again, these really long fuel channels. And the at Darlington, there's four reactors. And each reactor has about 480 fuel channels. So each channel has about 13 fuel bundles in each channel. So there's just over 6,000 fuel bundles in the reactor. And that's what's, that's what's creating that, that great electricity that we like. So the fuel bundle stays in the reactor for about 18 months. So every, every day or every shift, they're changing out these fuel bundles. So the operators are refueling. And they're strategically selecting uh, fuel channels um, and then inserting new fuel bundles into those fuel channels. Okay, okay, interesting. So one bundle lasts 18 months, which is around a year and a half. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure it produces a, a lot of energy. Um, uh, yeah, I, I wish... I wish my tank of gas actually lasted <laughs> a year and a half. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine that? Yeah. So another popular myth about nuclear waste is that there is just so much of it. Uh, so tell us how much nuclear waste is there in Ontario? Well, I'm going to give you a, an even kind of bigger analogy just to show you how, how small the amount of waste is for nuclear. So if you were to take all the used fuel in Canada all across Canada, the total amount of used fuel would fill nine hockey rinks from the bottom of the ice to the top of the boards. And it's because nuclear nuclear energy has that really high energy density. So you don't need as much materials for the same amount of energy that you would need from other sources, which means a significant less amount of waste. So I'm sure you've heard this. Um, if you were to take all your energy needs from nuclear power. So your entire lifetime supply of those uranium pellets, again, which are about the size of your fingertips, the lifetime supply that you would need would fit into a pop can. And so if you compare that to other energy sources for like a fossil fuel like coal, uh, so for a person or household per year, you're looking at about equivalent of 700 pounds of coal for the same amount of electricity that you would produce from nuclear. So there is such a small amount of waste from nuclear energy for the same amount of of energy that's produced from these other sources. Perhaps the biggest myth of all is that there is no safe way to store nuclear byproducts. How are nuclear byproducts stored in Ontario? And how can we be sure that they are being stored safely? 
Yeah, this is a huge myth. And again, the Simpsons lied to you, Osama. <laughs> um, so first of all, it soared safely, not only in Ontario, but all over the world. So at OPG, you know, we've been storing nuclear waste for five decades. There's never been a release of radiation or harm to any of our employees, to any of the public or any of the environment or any of the environment ever. Uh, the reason is we just aren't exposed to it. Scientists, again, like scientists, there's a lot of smart people in the nuclear industry and physicists and chemists. So scientists have analyzed the fundamental chemistry and the makeup of all these materials. So we know exactly what type of packaging each material needs. We also know what kind of building it needs to be stored in. And we also know the kind of protective shielding that, that we need when we're handling it. And we know that different radiation needs different shielding. So for example, we talked about the fuel bundles and they're removed from the reactor and they're placed in large pools and that's what we call wet storage. So these, these pools are really, yeah, they're what you, what you would picture a pool to be. So you walk in, there's a big pool. But the water in this pool is enough to shield the fuel bundles that are coming right out of the reactor. So you can walk right up to that pool, you can walk around the pool, and you'll be wearing protective clothing that you do on a standard construction site. So you have your hard hat, your goggles, your gloves, your safety boots, but you don't need any extra protection from the radiation because the water is shielding it. Then after several years, the fuel bundles uh, lose a, a good chunk of the radioactivity and the heat. Uh, so they're moved to dry storage containers. So when that's placed in a dry storage container, it's placed in a, uh, a building and you can walk up and down the aisles of all these dry storage container buildings. Uh, sorry, you can walk up and down the aisle with all the dry storage containers and it's completely safe and shielded. And you can spend all day and all night there. And I've, I've been there. I've been to our facilities that have these rows of these dry storage containers and you can walk right up to them. And then for the lower level waste, so low level waste, again, it's like those workers' garments, papers, small tools. It's sorted and segregated, just like you do at home. So you have your green bin, your recycling bin, and then you have your garbage bin. And then depending on the type of material, uh, it, it goes in what bin, it can be processed. So at OPG, our ultimate goal would be waste minimization. So everything we're doing within my, my division, particularly the Nuclear Sustainability Services, is to reduce the amount of volumes that we have and ultimately reduce our environmental footprint. So we go in to each of those bins and we pull out the material to process them. So we have some great technology that we use. We use uh, compaction, which as you can imagine, it's, you know, compacts down the waste to make it really small. And we also have our own incinerator. So incinerator is like a big furnace. So to give you an idea of the amount of waste that you can incinerate, uh, so if you had 40 bags, kind of, you know, garbage bag size of low-level waste. Again, those worker garments, small tools, and, and what have you, papers, gloves. So there's 40 bags of those. Once it goes through the incinerator, there'll be one bag left, and the bag will be full of ash, similar to like a fireplace ash. So this processing technique um, really reduces and minimizes the volumes that are stored. So we, we incinerate a lot of our waste through our own incinerator. Okay, that's great to know. And, and what happens to that waste when once it's incinerated? Um, where, where is it stored? So it's stored. So after it's, it's minimized to a much smaller amount, it's stored at our Western facility um, 
up in and nuclear sustainability services at our Western facility. The lower level waste is. One myth about nuclear byproducts that is perpetuated is that they are a really bad choice for meeting our energy needs. But let's talk about how nuclear energy stacks up against waste produced by other forms of energy production. So can you tell us a little bit more about a comparison between the impacts of nuclear energy to that of other common energy sources? Yeah, you know, as we've heard, combating climate change crisis is going to require, like you said, every tool in the clean energy toolbox. So from wind, solar, renewables, hydroelectric, and of course, nuclear. So nuclear supplying the most reliable and largest amount of clean energy. So nuclear has a much smaller land mass footprint, which frees up a lot of land for natural habitats and farming. To generate the same amount of energy as nuclear, solar needs about 100 times more land mass, and wind needs about 500 times more land mass. And As you know, the sun isn't always shining and the wind isn't always blowing. So these other sources do not provide that baseload electricity that we need on those really cold days in the winter and on those really hot days in the summer. So you would need about 3,500 wind turbines to generate the same amount of electricity that comes from Darlington Station. So if you could imagine a wind farm, 3,500 wind wind uh, turbines it would probably be toronto to ottawa that wind farm it's massive and for solar you would need scores of millions of solar panels to have the same amount of supply that you could get from a darlington energy from the darlington generating station and and i know your question was about specifically about the waste so again all forms of all industries produce waste So solar produces large amounts of toxic chemicals, and the solar panels need to be replaced every 20 years. And wind also generates a lot of waste that needs to be disposed of, uh, particularly the turbine blades. And again, they have a lifetime supply of 20 to 25 years. And um, it's expected that I've read that about 720,000 blade material will need to be disposed of of in the next 20 years. So 720,000 tons of blade material will be disposed of in the next 20 years for wind turbines. So another great thing about nuclear, I know I've been talking very highly of nuclear. (laughs) Nuclear is the only industry that accounts and controls the entire life cycle of the waste. And, you know, what does that mean? It's all accounted for. It's all safely managed, it's all controlled, it's all characterized and classified. We know where every ounce of it is. And the full waste stream, the full life cycle is completely funded. So what does that mean? I know you've probably heard that it's fully funded. So this means that we've set aside money to cover the full life cycle. So there's upfront investments now that are built in to the cost to make sure that we have funding for today's operations. We also have funding for disposal. And then we also have funding for the full decommissioning of all our sites. So this is something that is just not the case for any other energy source. Once after that 20 years lifetime span of a wind turbine or those solar panels, who knows where they go? They go somewhere and it's it's not up, you know, in nuclear, we know exactly where it's going and it's been paid for. Really had a great time having this conversation and learning a lot to myself. Thank you so much, Nula, for for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Great. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
To follow these byproducts on their journey from the reactor to long-term storage, we will speak now with Eric Kremer. Eric is the Section Manager of Siting Safety and Assessment for Nuclear Waste Management Organization. Eric, thank you for being here and welcome to the Climate Challengers. So Eric, tell me a bit about the role of the NWMO or the Nuclear Waste Management Organization. Just what does it do? So the NWMO uh, came into existence um, in 2002 uh, out of active legislation, the Used Nuclear Fuel Waste Act, um, which is uh, an act of federal legislation. Our mandate is to propose and implement a long-term management approach for Canada's used nuclear fuel. And we need to do that in a way that ensures the safety of people and their environment, isolate and contain Canada's used nuclear fuel, uh, do so in a way that is um, acceptable to the public, hosted by a willing and informed uh, host community, and also the First Nation, uh, Métis, um, Indigenous communities that are partnering with across the region. That's great. I I think these are some significant tasks that the NWMO is taking on. And it's uh, it's great to know that they're implementing these solutions for uh, for spent nuclear fuel. So have there been any accidents in, uh, with spent nuclear fuel in Ontario or North America? No, there have been uh, no accidents resulting in um, harm to people in the environment due to uh, release of radioactivity. And that's after uh, you know, decades of um, operating and, and transportation experience. So, Eric, tell me internationally, what are some of the best practices for storing spent nuclear fuel? So, simply put, following decades of, you know, international research and development um, and cooperation, there is a, a clear scientific consensus that geological repositories offer the best solution for the safe long-term management use nuclear fuel. We in Canada have chosen a DGR for our use nuclear fuel. So have, I believe, all countries in the world that produce use nuclear fuel as a part of their power utilities. They have all chosen the deep geological repository as, uh, as their long-term management approach. A few really good examples where we are actually um, really benefiting from the work that they have completed. So one would be the program in Sweden, uh, which is uh, led by SKB, is that organization's name. Also in Finland, that organization is, uh, is POSIVA. So both of those countries, their uh, programs for developing uh, deep geological repositories are uh, ahead of ours um, in terms of uh, licensing, uh, in terms of construction. And... We work really closely with those organizations. Could you tell me why, uh, what inspires you to be a climate challenger day to day in regards to your work? How is that connected with um, with combating climate change? And also, what, what really inspires you in this regards? Well, um, I think right off the top, I can say this project is important to our climate um, because it's supporting a solution to management of of a waste byproduct of, of nuclear power generation. So I, I'd say there's a very direct and immediate uh, relationship to, to say, you know, safeguard our climate uh, stay and over the long term. For me personally, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm a family guy. I've got uh, a wife and five kids and uh, 
you know, it is, you know, it, it's such it, such an important thing uh, being able to able to think about where our where our climate, where our environment is today, um, its health, and you know the long term sustainability of of our communities, of of our lifestyles, and having that being an intrinsic part of of the work that I do. Um, it's very meaningful. Absolutely. Definitely. I think this has been a great conversation, Eric. Really, really appreciate your time uh, and an insight, exceptional insight into this, uh, you know, th- this topic of DGR and disposal of spent nuclear fuel. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for allowing me to talk about my work. I love talking about my work. I love my work. And uh, it's, been, it's been very nice having this conversation with you today. Thanks again. I want to thank both of my guests today, Nula Zitsema and Eric Krimer, for a great discussion about how the nuclear industry manages its byproducts. It is clear we have a lot of work still to do to educate the public, but it is also clear that the nuclear industry understands that this is its moment. With climate change accelerating, we need nuclear to play a leading role in lowering our emissions. And to do that, we need to be transparent and forthcoming about the byproducts that are created and how they are safely handled and stored. To learn more about nuclear byproducts, please visit climatechallengers.com. This is Osama Beg. Thanks for listening.